Your Business School. In this episode of ABS Chat, we talk to Denise Deborn, an expert in branding, product development and marketing. Denise is a startup specialist with over 30 years of expertise in launching successful beauty and wellness companies. Welcome, Denise, to ABS Chats. It's a pleasure to have you here with us. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. You've had a very successful career, uh, particularly as Vice President and General Manager at Victoria's Secret. You've been partner at Inventages Venture Capital, and now you're President of the Bond Development. Yes. I think it'd be good to get a sense, you know, what your education or how education and training has influenced your career till date? That's a very interesting question. So I, um, I took a job as a secretary to put myself through night school at NYU and was going to school to be uh, a teacher, an educator, actually. And that job was with a startup division of a beauty company called Jermaine Monte at the time. And we were three people in the division. And as a result of that, I got a lot of, um, let's just say FaceTime with the president and the executive VP, et cetera, et cetera. And I got promoted in like under a year to an assistant product manager, which was the beginning of a career in beauty, number one, and number two, in startups. It actually was a startup division. Um, I continued my education at NYU evenings, which uh, obviously I was doing because um, I wanted to, right? It wasn't really about the career path at that time. Um, and then, um, And then I continued after I completed my education at NYU. And what I mean by that is, when I was a young girl, my mother always said, if Denise could be paid to be a student, she'd be a student for the rest of her life. And she was correct. I have been a student for the rest of my life. Um, I find that uh, studying, learning, education, um, it keeps me growing. It's important. It was important to my, the start of my career back then Although I got a job and got promoted, that doesn't happen with everyone, right? But it it keeps me um, awake and listening and learning. And I think that those things are very important to careers. And so that we, particularly if you're an entrepreneur and you're a startup specialist. And it doesn't matter if you know exactly what your career path is going to be. Learning facilitates every career path, right? It facilitates um, everyone's job, everyone's life. We never know so much that there isn't something to learn that's new. And so, and, and one of the things I have to say is that my education was at night school. And so many of the, uh, instructors profession, were professionals during the day. They were adjunct professors. And so they brought to the evening classes lots of experience from their day jobs. 
which I found very interesting, rather than just the academia of it all. So I was very lucky to have both of those experiences at the same time, both having the academic studies as well as the professionals coming and sharing their experiences. So um, I encourage, well, I love school, I love studying, I'm associated with you because it's something that I strongly believe in for everyone. And I encourage people to uh, take it very seriously and have fun at the same time. There's always something to learn and there's always something to share. Does that, does that answer your question? I, I think it does answer the question. I think I, I did pick up at a point and it leads into the next question. You did um, just mention that learning facilitates every career path. So do you think your role has had to evolve then? from marketing and investments to product and business development? Yeah, so I would say that, so I went from a secretary to an assistant product manager, to marketing, to a general manager, to a CEO of uh, a beauty company, and then um, and to an entrepreneur of my own company, uh, which I started in 1993. And so I don't, and during that process, um, I do think that a lot of it happened, if I'm, a lot of it happened learning on the job, right? I mean, I learned marketing in school, but while I was learning marketing and branding in school, I was faced with having, because of my day job, I was faced with having to do marketing. And so I was very lucky. It was hand in hand. Now, because I was in startups, and they're, uh, you know, back then we called them newcos. <laughs> Today we call them startups. But, and there are very few people, you had to wear a lot of hats, right? And so, one, so while I may have not been a, a, a package developer, I needed to know about package development and purchasing and timelines, right? And you know, getting cost of goods correct and all of that. And so I had to learn how to do that and direct it. And while I was doing that, my education was also uh, complementing the tools that I needed in addition to learning on the job. Um, so would you then say that uh, it is important for education to complement what you're doing in practice? Um, that's an interesting question. I don't know. I, to tell you the truth, I think that education complements everything. Um, I think that learning facilitates everything. I mean, I think studying English makes you a better communicator, right? You know, literature makes you a better reader. Um, uh, other things make you a better listener. Yeah. Right. I mean, there there are skills and tools that come from just being engaged in learning that may have something specific to do with your career path, but they may not. They may not. Right. I mean, learning to listen is an important skill and many people don't have it. Right. They, they think they have it you know, but they, I have experienced that, 
there are a number of ways to listen, right? So there's listening to learn, there's listening to be present, right, to the other person and understand, and there's listening to respond. And I have found that most people in business listen to respond. Their brain becomes engaged while they're listening and while they're thinking, they're, they've somewhat stopped listening because they're thinking of their answer, right? When you're in school, you know, whatever the class is, whatever, hopefully you're learning to be present, to listen until the, do you understand? So I think that that's a skill that education facilitates. Okay. No matter what the practice is. I mean, if you're in a technical field like IT or education or, you know, something that requires coding, et cetera, et cetera, school is important, right? If you are a designer, right, and you're learning, you know, graphic design or branding in that way, those skills can be learned through education or in marketing, you know, which is ever evolving, right? I mean, marketing today is very different than it was even a year ago and is very different than it was 10 years ago, right? And so those things keep evolving and it's good to keep learning even if you're not in a curriculum in school. Like for example, you know, um, uh, direct-to-consumer marketing, you know, which since, uh, April of this year to the present time has grown more than in the since 2008 to April. The increase in online purchasing and direct-to-consumer marketing and uh, is is larger has grown more in the, those what is it now four months five months than in the t entire ten years prior where it was steadily growing and creeping up. I think it's somewhere close to 30% of retail in the United States now, maybe just under, right? So those kinds of skills, uh, you know, you can learn those on the job, but curriculums teach them. They teach you how to do social media marketing, how to create those ads, how to do the analytics, how to do all of that. And that is very important today. You know, the leadership skills that, you know, I think that there are some curriculums that cultivate that or try to cultivate that. I think a lot of that has to come, or not has to come, a lot of that comes in practice more than in theory. Okay. Uh, so building on what you've just said and, and picking on two points. So you mentioned that learning on the job is important and you have to wear many hats while you worked in a startup environment. So based on your experience, how would you describe the impact of branding and marketing on product development? Well, it's enormously impactful, right? I mean, there are phenomenal products that I wouldn't say fail, but don't get traction in the market um, because of um, the marketing and branding, the communication of it. And, um, and there are, you know, brands in the market that have average products 
that are enormously successful because of the way they engage the customer and the way that they communicate to the customer, which of course is ever changing. What the customer wants to hear and how they want to be engaged is, is a moving target. One of the, the constants in that moving target is um, the audience typically wants to know the answer to one question. And whether that is a VC or a customer or someone else, the question is, what's in it for me? What's in it for me, right? So the customer wants to know what's in it for them at the end of the day. The VC wants to know what's in it for them. I mean, I'm oversimplifying. And the more, and developing um, a finesse with articulation is, is uh, one of the most valuable things a brand can do. How does one differentiate the what's in it for them? How do they engage that customer, you know, whether it's emotionally or technically in that conversation? And I have found that in my experience, the more a brand is aligned with what the product benefit is or what's in it for them, with the brand name, with the branding message, the less time it takes and the less resources it takes the consumer to understand. And by resources, I mean time and money, right? Mm -hmm. So the more, so today we're very lucky because with online marketing and the analytics, we can test if our messaging is getting across or not to an audience, right? And, and 10 years ago, you know, 20 years ago, you'd have to run ads and just see how they worked, right? Whether they were in magazines or in the mail or whatever, and then just sort of wait and see. Today, you can get an enormous read. You can identify who you think your market is, identify people who you don't think your market is, and then, and then go and test them to see, you know, which one is resonating and how they resonate. Post-COVID, um, a lot of the branding um, trends that I'm hearing are important are um, very emotional, you know, versus technical, more emotional than product performance, if you will. Now that's something that changes, you know, and it depends on the area that someone is in, obviously. And also rather than uh, customer, it's about community, right? We're all isolated right now. And yet we're connecting, we're connecting through Zoom, we're connecting through community, right? And so, and also, um, you know, being relevant and um, speaking to them, not sort of COVID washing it, but with an understanding of what's impacting them today, right? What is specifically important to them today? And the brands that who are messaging and offering, you know, uh, you know, there are a lot of people who are fin struggling financially, you know, hopefully it's temporary. I believe it's temporary, so I'm very optimistic. Um, but brands that are offering value and offering ways for them to, uh, for customers 
to uh, join communities to get their products delivered to, to them safely. All of those kinds of things will be the brands that, whether they're new brands or existing brands, that will um, continue to emerge as leaders in the coming years. I, I think so. Building on that, the points that you just mentioned, particularly um, with the mention that firms are becoming more emotional post-COVID and that with the change in the socioeconomic environment within which we find ourselves, uh, that growth of uh, direct-to-consumer marketing is being observed, right? Um, so in addition to those two things you've mentioned and, of course, other socioeconomic issues like the Black Lives Matter movements, and of course social media and the implication of communities. Do you think these and other issues are having a significant impact on businesses you've been affiliated with in the past or businesses that you're involved in today? I do. I think the short answer is I do. I think that, um, you know, I'm not a real fan of you know, the new normal. I don't know what that means. <laughs> and I don't know what normal ever was or what actually, I know what average is. I don't know what normal actually is. But I, I do, we are changed. We will, we are continuing to change, right? As a society, we are con always continuing to change as marketers. We, you know, um, you know, one of the industries that I have been involved with has been the fitness industry as well. One of my VC clients is very big in the fitness business. And so because of that, I have a lot of exposure to it. And there's a, there's a, a, a phrase that's, you know, give us three weeks and we'll change your body. You know, give us three weeks and we'll change your habits. And the reason they say that is because you know, there are lots of different statistics, but you know, over three weeks, habits can change and they can change forever or for a very long period of time. And we've certainly been uh, addressing, you know, COVID, Black Lives Matter, the environment, you know, all of these issues for more than three weeks, right? So they are ingrained in many of us and will continue to be there. I think that, um, again, nobody wants to feel like people are just talking heads and it's not real. However, I do feel that, you know, brands that particularly with uh, the younger markets, particularly for college students, particularly for uh, millennials, you know, Gen, Z, millennials, all, you know, people who are 18 to, you know, in their 30s, you know, um, social justice and the planet and the environment is very, very important to them. It's not just about their bank account. This has been going on for a very long time. This is not just happening now, but I think it's amplified now. I mean, just look at who's marching in the streets, at least in New York, right? I mean, and that's not going to go away, right? That, it, hopefully, not to get political, but I do think it's going to continue, you know, because um, people, individuals 
want change and want to be accountable and responsible for that change. And they want to align with other individuals. And that means other brands. You know, there's, you know, is a company a person? A lot, you know, there's this question is, you know, treat companies like people. I'm not going to get into that debate, but I do know that people make up companies. There is no company without the people and the team who, who are employed in it and or who lead it. And so I think that as individuals are seeking um, a better world, however they define that, they are going to be aligning with brands who are seeking to make a better world as well. So based on your experience, would you say you've observed similarities or differences between how marketing is done in large firms in contrast to smaller firms? Yes, I would say the answer to that is, you know, it depends. Every large firm is not the same as every small firm. Um, you know, uh, most of my, uh, let, let's just say I grew up in the beauty industry, beauty and wellness. That was sort of my uh, uh, core competency. And, um, you, you know, I've done beverage, I've done wines, I've launched clubs, you know, learning how to launch businesses as a startup specialist, you cultivate tools and skills that you can hopefully apply to many categories. So, but from speaking from the beauty and wellness industry and health, um, what has happened over the last, uh, you know, decade or two decades is that uh, innovation uh, mostly comes, mainly comes from smaller companies that are then acquired by larger companies. And um, so larger companies, I'll give you like sort of Estee Lauder, Cody, you know, all of these, L'Oreal, for example, you know, you know the names of them. You know, their growth has mainly been through acquisition and their, and they mainly acquire, um, you know, startups or emerging companies that have uh, penetrated the market successfully, um, are, you know, building sales, have... Uh, refined their branding, their message, there's demand in the market, and they can apply the resources and or distribution, resources meaning manpower, distribution, money, to um, grow that business, right? So, so it's really the application of those resources that they have in place. Many of the, um, so they're not what I would say um, visionary marketers at this time. Now, that's not to say that they have not, many of them have created, you know, funds and, you know, smaller, um, well, funds and organizations that fund startups or cultivate startups so that they become laboratories inside their organization. Many of them. Unilever has them, L'Occitane has them, I can go through the list. So they have seen that their organization as it's currently structured 
is not cultivating that innovation. So they have created innovation teams or businesses inside of those companies where the main job is to seek out innovators, apply their resources, and then, um, and then bring them into the business, right? You know, in a way and at a time that doesn't negatively affect their bottom line, right? So it's almost as if they're R&D. You know what I'm saying? They are R&D, so they're not really the brands and businesses that are line and impacting the bottom line for their shareholders. They're in another area that is, you know, I'm not looking at all of their P&L, so I can't say this, you know, that this is true for everyone, but they're in an area where the impact of the innovation doesn't negatively affect the business, but the success of the innovation can be brought in to the business. And they all have them. I mean, fragrance companies have them, Jubadon has them, Fermanish has them, Unilever has them. Lots of time, I mean, you can go through the list, Lauder has them. So they have, and if you are um, participating in, um, you know, shows where uh, startups, uh, you know, have discussions or launches or we're not having group shows right now. But in the past, where those young innovators are, you will see the retailers and the large companies coming to seek out those innovators, to bring them, whether it's into their funds um, or, or into their company, that's where they're finding the next uh, I don't know, glam, you know, glam squad, for example, for example, or, um, you know, there's so, you know, there's so many of them that you can think of, but that's where they're looking for them. They're seeking them out at these, uh, you know, where they're going. And it's quite interesting the response you've given. And, um, the fact is that you've walked on both sides. So you've worked within a large firm and you started a business of your own. So do you find it easier developing new products in an established firm in contrast to in startups, for instance? Um, I don't know if easier, um, it's different. It's different in, um, it's, in larger firms, it's um, encumbered by um, protocols. You have to go through certain protocols that take time, um, and and they're good. I'm not saying that you know they're not necessary and they're not good. So you know, in a corporation. Um, let's just say a new brand, whether it's a fragrance, let's, let's take an easy one, a fragrance brand, right? That doesn't have a lot of uh, innovation to it, right? Let's just say it has branding and packaging and all of the above. You know, in a corporation that could probably take two years to, you know, minimally to, you know, from let's do something for Ralph Lauren and get it to market, maybe even three. In a startup, it would probably be less than a year. Right. In skincare, 
it's similar. It, you know, it takes a lot more time because there's more going on. There's more brands that they're doing. There, you know, there's where in a smaller company, everybody is doing the same thing quickly. So you can move it. I think you could be a little faster and a little bit more flexible, even staying within um, uh, what I would say fair and reasonable protocols, you know, making sure that the product is safe, making sure that it is stable, making sure that um, it meets consumer demand, you know, all of those different things. Um, and also in a larger company, there may be uh, more testing that's done, whether it's qualitative or quanti quantitative, where in a small company, they might just take more risks and, um, you know, just go with, uh, you know, take a risk, you know, they may do, um, you know, like I said, Facebook ads or Instagram to test the market, whatever. In a larger company, they, they might do a lot more testing than in a smaller company. So it would be faster. I think that's the major difference. I think we haven't got a lot of time, so I think I'll just go through the last few questions very quickly. Something that would be good to get a sense of from you is whether it's fair to say you're a business leader, product development expert, and a startup investor. However, you are an entrepreneur at heart. Is that correct? I am. I would say that you know, at heart, I'm an entrepreneur. I have been, um, I like starting new things. I like innovation. I like change. I'm not afraid of risk. Um, now that being said, I have structured, I have a life that allows me to take risks, right? That is not uh, a lot of risk right? Because I don't have children to worry about, right? I don't have mouths to feed. Um, you know, I do have family responsibilities, but when and if I fail and, and I do, or the businesses fail or do, I am the one having the most impact, right? And the people who are in the business with me, um, you know, have signed on to that risk. There is risk with being an entrepreneur. It's not for everyone, right? You have to be able to ride the waves of up and down and there will be waves. Nothing is a straight line. Even when it goes straight at the beginning, you know, there will be ups and downs along the way. And not everyone is, uh, not everyone has the personality for that and not everyone's lives are suited to that. And I think it's important to know that. You know, an example that I give is one of the founders of Reebok years ago, you know, um, you, you know, sold his shares out because he had to get a job and go take care of his family. And a year or two later, it soared. Now, did he make the wrong decision? No, he made a decision that he needed to make for his family. Right. And so those are the kinds of things that people really should, um, you know, contemplate in, in, in deciding where they want to be in their career. It's all timing. It's all cycles. So in less than one minute, what would you like to leave with our listeners? A takeaway, something for them to remember. 
Um, in one minute, I'd say the following. Uh, a very, a guru once said, in order to be happy in life, one needs to cultivate uh, two things. That life is like nature, and nature goes up, and nature goes down. Life goes up, life goes down. Businesses go up, businesses go down. It's the nature of things. And he said, so then to be happy, and I would say to be successful, I would change that out to be successful. One needs to cultivate humility at the top and resilience at the bottom. If one can cultivate humility and resilience, knowing when to listen, listen to their team, to their peers, the humility of that, knowing when they're wrong, and then resilience at the bottom and perseverance, they will be successful. Oh, that's inspiring. Thank you <laughs> Thank you so much. You're very uh, welcome. It's a pleasure. And I do hope an opportunity will present itself to have this conversation again in the future. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Take care. Then. Ciao. Bye.